She tries to eat grass. She's not supposed to eat grass. <laughs> so I don't think I should take her outside more. Think I'll just stay here and drain. Hey, putting you down won't square the deal. So welcome to episode 12 of Major Revisions. I am Jeff Atkins from Virginia Commonwealth University. With me from the great Iowa State University, go Cyclones, is Grace Wilkinson. Hello, Grace. Hey, Jeff. How are you doing today? Doing well. And That's good. from Yeah, we're making... It's actually a really nice weather day. It was like 75 degrees here in February. It's ridiculous. Whew. And from the University of Kansas in the great Sunflower State is John Walter. Howdy, John. Hey, Jeff, how's it going? I thought we had lost John there for a minute. That was going to be bad. No. So, I, guys, I, I, I have a question lost. for you. I was a little slow, but not lost. <laughs> it's okay. It's that time of the semester. But, guys, I have a question for you. I'm, I'm coming off of one of those kind of up-and-down weeks, right? And uh, topped off Friday with a very nicely written rejection letter. Uh, third time this paper has been rejected. Though each time it's been glowingly reviewed for its framing and its writing, which I guess I should take as a compliment in some weird way. Um, this time the major criticism being basically that the scope of the research was not considered broadly applicable to the audience of the journal, saying that it was just, you know, I guess maybe we didn't make the case for that our, our small forest in the mid-Atlantic was totally representative of what we were trying to say. But my question to you guys is how do you deal with that inevitable parade of rejection that one encounters that's pretty much part and parcel with being a scientist, either through rejected grants, rejected papers, rejected proposals. I mean, funding rates are, you know, 15, 20%. So it just happens, right? So what is your guys' coping mechanism? How do you deal with that? Well, John, I think... Um, you know, at this point... You go first, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, at this point, I've just been rejected... You know, so many times, whether it's, yeah, grants, papers, uh, job applications, um, I think, sadly, I'm really pretty inured to it. Like, you know, I get more, you know, you get more rejections being an academic scientist than in the dating world. So, <laughs> like... <laughs> like, <laughs> I mean, I, I, I should preface that by saying that... Uh, Two out of three of us are married, and I'm engaged, so we might have more success in the dating world than the average person. But but nonetheless, like... I'm not, I'm not sure what my Bayesian priors are for that. Um. <laughs> so, to do you clarify... Write, do you write formal proposals to be... <laughs> that would be a really good plan. <laughs> <laughs> so to clarify i wanted john to go first because i was trying to think of a better answer than how do i deal with rejection and drink <laughs> but <laughs> so it had nothing to do with john himself um but yeah I, I guess i would have to agree with john some of it is just becoming sort of immune or hardened towards it i guess now i get really ticked off if i get rejected and there's not um 
feedback, constructive feedback to accompany it. And yeah. so I understand Agreed. that sometimes Agreed. I don't hit the scope. Sometimes I don't hit the call for the proposal. Maybe I'm just not as good as everyone else there. Like you said, funding is tight. But I get really ticked off if there's not constructive feedback that's included. So that's definitely... Yeah, I mean, there, there's always... Yeah, I was going to say, there's always that side of it. Because you do, you know, when you get some of these things back, whether it be a paper or a proposal, if there is feedback, you've had experts in the field who have taken their time to give you, you know, hopefully some constructive feedback that you can roll into that and it ultimately will make it better in the future. Um, but still, I know I immediately, like, read it and I'm like, uh, and have to, like, turn off email and, like, go do something else for, like, a day. <laughs> like, move on to another project or something. But it's yeah, in the moment. No. It's not. That's, that's true. Like, I, I do, like, when I get a rejection, I do ignore it for at least a day. Right, because I don't know. I it just helps to have a little bit of space from it, and you know, to kind of like let the fact that you've been rejected um, kind of filter through your consciousness, and and then you know, deal with um, you know, deal with why and what comes next. Because um, especially with papers, you know, a lot of times. You know, it sucks to be dealing with, you know, your third or so rejection um, for for a single paper. Um, I, you know, am in the same same kind of boat uh, with a paper that um, I'm a co-author on. It had been rejected from, I think, three different places without even being reviewed. Um, oh, wow. So that was extra, that was extra, you know, shitty because... We didn't even really get any feedback on it. Um, so, John, can uh, I ask, did you follow up with the editor or the associate editor to ask why? Was it, you know, to find out if it was out of the scope of the journal or? Um, yeah, so we, you know, we didn't follow up. Um, the, basically the, you know, short explanation that we got each time was, um, you know, approximately that it just wasn't like sexy enough. Like they didn't think that there was um, broad enough interest for it. Um, and we, you know, we were aiming at pretty selective journals too. So um, they have mm -hmm. a relatively high rate of rejection um, without uh, review anyway. So mm -hmm. it's kind of par for the course um, some places. Sure. Sure. Yeah, I think that's 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 part of what we've been running into as well. Is it's, this is a really interdisciplinary kind of paper too, and so it doesn't easily. I mean, I don't know. It doesn't easily fit somewhere, and um, I think that was why we thought this third time we thought this was a better home for it, and um, yeah, it didn't work out. It's fine, but it also is just such a time sink, you know? Like it's paper's been written since like 2015 <laughs> it's still just it just takes so long sometimes to get everything it takes three or four months or more for a review yeah now i gotta start that cycle all over again you know i've been noticing more journals are accepting papers that are not in the perfect journal format and then they say if you're looking like you're going to accept get accepted here then we will force you you know, to conform to our style and all the things that you spend your time doing, the arts and crafts. 
But that's nice. Maybe there's starting to be a recognition that this constantly having to spend time to reformat when you could spend it instead focusing on retooling the paper for the journal as opposed to wasting time reformatting it for the journal. Yeah, I think that's good. I mean, because when it sends out, like when I review a paper, I don't, give, I don't care what format it's in. Like, it doesn't matter to me. I mean, whatever. Yeah. So. The only, the only thing that I care about, and this is a like ridiculous pet peeve of mine, but there are some journals that don't want you to indent paragraphs, which makes it really hard. Like when you have a new paragraph where the previous one naturally goes to the end of a line, it makes it really difficult to tell where the paragraph breaks are, and it really pisses me off. <laughs> <laughs> Guys, you keep talking. I have to go apparently check on my dog. I'll be right back. <laughs> <laughs> So I would recommend anyone who is in John's field who might recommend him as a reviewer, check your paragraph indentation. <laughs> oh my well, gosh. So, some of the some of the journals like explicitly ask for that. Um at least one does. Because I bitched at a or at a uh author and they replied, This is how the journal requests it and I said, Well fine. The journal's dumb. <laughs> Have you reviewed there since? No, I haven't. <laughs> I haven't been so, asked to, for the record, but... So, what um, What do you think of the old adage or whatnot, that if your papers aren't getting rejected semi-frequently, you're not trying to put them in the top journals enough? Do you think that's true? I think maybe to a point, um, I've actually asked myself that question and because, um, in spite of the, you know, situation that I just mentioned, um, it's been a long time since I've had a, a paper that I was first author on, like rejected outright. Um, but I've. I think that it's just a string of luck, to be honest with you, um, because, you know, no, I'm not aiming at science and nature, but I've been aiming at selective publications, and I think that I've just gotten lucky with, you know, s sympathetic handling editors in a couple cases, and um, reviewers that did see the value in the study that I was presenting. Um, but, I, but I think, you know, I think that you can um, aim too low. I don't think that, you know, it's a good use of your time to always aim too high um, because then you're just stuck, um, you know, reformatting things um, and wasting other people's time basically who have to review your paper but sure yeah that's kind of exactly my general sense is is that you're if you're i don't know if if you're shooting and scoring and it's in the top journals in your field then maybe you're doing just fine i'm not sure i 100 percent buy into this if you're not getting rejected fairly often or even somewhat frequently you're not shooting high enough i agree with you Plus, there's ridiculous well, the concept. Have you never been told this before, Jeff? No, I've never heard this one. Oh, 
Well, then perhaps I hang out with weird people, but <laughs> I, I have. No, I mean, no, I... yeah. I I've, I've heard this before too, um, so I don't think it's you know it's a totally unique thing. I think that some people really do feel like that is a real thing. Interesting. Yeah, and I think you brought up a good point there too, John. Reviewer fatigue is a very real thing, and I think it's a thing that um, editors are dealing with and even just trying to find reviewers. And so the more conscientious we can be as people that are trying to publish, probably the better. It's like good reviewing karma. Yeah, and I think, you know, I think... um selecting people who are likely to review your paper as when you know when you suggest editors is is key um i just started as a um editor for ecosphere and um it was kind of you know eye-opening how difficult it can be to find reviewers um and i found it particularly frustrating that even the people that the you know authors had suggested to review their paper you know who presumably would be interested in that work are you know re- declining to review and of course yeah. there's a lot of things that go into that but um you know just food for thought absolutely It just seems like an inefficient use of your time if you're constantly shooting for things that are getting you rejected. Yeah, I guess I, you got to figure out what the trade-off is there. If you're getting eventually into higher tier journals, but you shoot too high, you know how, what's the payoff there? Well, uh, but maybe you're also I mean, just playing the wrong game and that you should be really focused on just doing good science and putting good science out there. Yes. Well, I mean... Even if you think about like the incentive system for academia, unless you're you know shooting at science and nature, um, this probably isn't going to pay off for you because it you know quality and reputation of journals is important, but you know raw numbers are also you know incentivized. Um, in academia, sure. so that's it's an interesting game to try to play. That's for sure. All right, so you had um, presented a paper to us that was uh, first authored by William Reiners in Ecological Monographs, and this was published um, about mid-year last year. And the goal of this paper was to look at what concepts in ecology do ecologists themselves find to be most useful or most important when they're studying. Um, so you want to tell, give a little more background about the paper, Jeff? Sure. Uh, first of all, Bill is my academic great-great-grandfather. So I always find his, his work to be very interesting. But he also has a penchant for doing these surveys every couple of years. He did a, another one, actually, in 2013 about what is a good ecologist and what do good ecologists think. That's another interesting one. But in this one, he pulled a bunch of people from the Ecological Society of America. The idea of trying to learn, like, what concepts do ecologists value in their utility? And I think, you know, there's a bulk of this paper that we could really talk about at another time that's really interesting, but one part that I thought was kind of 
interesting for us to talk about was this idea of what are the concepts that are you know kind of least well understood or least broadly represented now in theirs they kind of ranked it by utility right and so the bottom or the top 10 in utility are concepts like species habitat disturbance organism population ecosystem which on a scale of 0 to 5 ecosystem only got a 4.23 so there's a portion of the ecologist community out there who don't feel like the ecosystem concept has utility just want to point that out but the bottom section of this are things like nutrient spiraling uh, character displacement doubling time climax hardy weinberg equation but what I thought would be interesting for us to talk about were what are the concepts that we feel are kind of you know underrepresented in in the literature or concepts that we think you know should be more explored um, or should be better represented in research and so you know we all come from kind of different kind of backgrounds and so it may be an interesting kind of conversation point like where do we feel the kind of frontiers are in this regard so sure. I think you guys all have one who wants to go first Don't everyone jump in. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, I, I think I'd just say off the top, though, just looking at those concepts that were at the very bottom, um, mm -hmm. I guess I was a little surprised that nutrient spiraling came in so low. Um, but I also think yeah. that I, I wonder, looking at the concepts that are down there, if you guys identified ones that you were surprised about that were so low and perhaps is part of that reflective of the fact that ESA is a broad umbrella society for a lot of us, but it's not maybe our home society for all of us and so that perhaps maybe some disciplines are less represented could that have been reflected here or maybe not i feel like some of these are honestly i think it's totally possible i think some of these are just things that people don't aren't well understood period so yeah. i mean i know like i don't really completely understand red queen hypothesis or um the Hardy Weinberg. I don't even know what the Hardy Weinberg equation is, actually. So I would probably rank that as very low utility. Yeah. So both of those are concepts from, uh, well, more evolutionary concepts, and that might reflect that, um, you know, a lot of, well, a lot of people who, uh, whose you know sort of primary field is evolution. Or population genetics, um, maybe, maybe that's not a whole lot of ESA's membership. Sure. Yeah, I can I could definitely see that with like chemoautotrophy and like, you know, unless you really work on like hydrothermal sea vents, that's not going to come up very often. Um, so you know, I don't know, but yeah. Sure, but how, how about our specific ones, like you were asking? Sorry, I, I derailed us there. No, you're fine. I'll, I'll jump off the, the, the top here since I brought this up. That seems only fair. Um, so, I guess, widely speaking, the thing that I, I would bring in is, is time. And I say time in that there's a couple subsets of that that I think are more kind of interesting, right? So, with, with kind of carbon cycling and carbon science being my background, some of the concepts I think that are not well considered are just like hysteresis. So this mm. idea that like the effect of some kind of you know stressor on a system or some kind of input 
is actually kind of displaced in time from when it happens. Um, so one of the, he did some work with a former grad student of ours who um, doing some 24-hour cycling experiments, right? And so the idea was we, we, we went out and we were measuring uh, soil respiration, uh, you know, CO2 coming from the soil surface every two hours for like a 48-hour period. And so you, um, we were doing this and we were also like wetting the soil as well and then like doing measuring response to that too so you can kind of see like when do you get this peak flux from adding the water to the system but also when do you get the peak flux kind of in that diel hysteresis right so the idea of during different times of the day and so the interesting thing is that you know the peak air temperature and peak soil temperature are kind of disconnected in time from when they actually occur depending on where you are on the planet and so like the actual peak soil respiration comes much later in the day than you know peak air temperature so you kind of get this disconnect right so if you're not really considering this when you're measuring this this can kind of be you know if you're using like a space for time kind of system or you're doing like point measurements instead of like a continuous measurement you know the time that you measure in the day could really bias your results and um Another idea was the concept of intra-annual variability and is not something that we, or I should say intra-annual and inter-annual, like either one, right? So like the variability within a year or the variability between years. And you know, I remember um, the first year that I, I started my PhD, I had like these really kind of crazy responses from one of the treatments that I was working in, and I was working in like different vegetation treatments, and that really kind of blew my mind. I was like, well this is way higher and different than I kind of thought and then the next year I went out and nothing no responses everything was completely muted and it wasn't until I kind of started looking at like climactic records I saw that it was really like this varying rainfall um, was really changing what was going on in the system because we were measuring things once a week so we were going out into the field and taking our measurements and then kind of calculating this up and we were seeing like these combined effects from um, you know basically the change in the climate and the weather in the years on these nutrient responses and on uh, you know carbon flux within the system and so we had like two different things going on we had hysteresis you know happening from when rain was occurring and when we were measuring but also just totally the variability in climate from year to year you know because we had like if you average it all out it was all normal but if you looked at actually like compared year to year they were vastly different from each other and so I think that's one thing that we're not really we're, we're starting to really kind of get a handle on and part of that is when you look at you know climate is kind of a paucity of records as well like how far back can we be able to you know kind of measure uh, you know climate and weather rain precipitation whatever it is we need in some of these systems and you know how good is that data record so I don't know I feel like I had another one too and I'm trying to remember what it was now that I can go on that but it was definitely this idea of this axis of time interesting um, that not you being this kind of fixed thing but yeah go ahead Grace I was going to say interesting that you bring up the um, measuring at various shorter frequencies and also thinking about the question of if you were to measure at one time a day how wrong in general would your measurement be because that's something we're also grappling right now with in at least lake ecosystems and trying to understand when we do these carbon measurements because in general 
we found that lakes are this big source of CO2 to the atmosphere. They're sort of acting like vents to the atmosphere of both terrestrial and in situ produced CO2. And that's the sort of thing as well where we're looking at now that we have these higher frequency time series, we can say, hey, if you've always been measuring it, say nine o'clock in the morning, yeah, this lake is still a source of CO2, but it's not that big of a source of CO2. Say Mm -hmm. if you had made your measurement at five o'clock in the afternoon when a lot of production has been occurring. And so that's also something, a similar question that we're grappling with over on the aquatic side too. Yeah, I think it's, it's, yeah, I mean, it's something that I don't think is necessarily explicitly considered in a lot of fields. I mean, it's a ridiculous comparison, but if you only measured like ozone and smog in like the middle of the night, you would never really think anywhere had a problem because you, I mean, that all that stuff is, you know, kind of catalyzed by sunlight. Um, that's a kind of ridiculous example, but I mean, if I did out and did all of my measurements in the morning, um, you know, I could have vastly underestimated the source sink status by like 80% easily, yeah. um, just because of how much it would be muted by temperature. So, and I guess it depends on how dynamic a system is as well. Mm. And I bet that moisture <laughs> plays a big difference. It changes your matrix with, through which the CO2 is moving. Yeah, definitely. I mean, we were trying to push this kind of, um, you, we were going to system when you work in like sort of respiration and stuff, you have a lot of the response, like the, the main response happens in like this kind of medial situation where you have like medium temperatures and medium levels of moisture, just because those typically tend to coincide because if you have really high temperatures that tends to dry out the soil. Um, so you, the, it's not really sexy to push the idea of like, you know, medium response kind of bell curve situation. Like, oh, it's, this is kind of where the sweet spot is. Everyone wants to talk about extremes, but um, yeah. So, yeah, my concept is time. I think, and it's, but it's not. I think a more explicit consideration of that and the variability within that. Um, and I know it's something that I try to think about, and it's not something I can really verbalize, I think, well. But I know, like, we started, we were playing with some of these weird concepts, like one of them's called, I'm going to mispronounce this, but like Mendelholtzen distance, hmm. where you look at, um, so you can combine variability of, like, two axes, and then basically look at, because you can do, like, temperature and uh, precipitation, like, for a year. And then you basically creating like these kind of sort of like probability distribution functions, but combined two axes and the one, and so you end up with like this weird circle and where your year kind of pins points into that. And um, we didn't really have enough data from some of the stuff for West Virginia to do this, but if we pulled, I think a lot from some of the climate data, you could get a little bit better of an understanding of this. But the idea is being like, you know, if you have a really high temperature year, but it's a low precipitation year versus a normal temperature year with a high precipitation, you know, how does that combine variability on these two axes affect mm. whatever it is you're measuring? And it's not something I think that's really well considered. And so I don't know. I think there's some way forward on that. And I think just in general hysteresis, but is something that really needs to be considered more in response and it's but it's not really it can be a difficult thing to really consider 
So it seems yeah. like something that is important here is, you know, is climate and changes in climate, you know, as, you know, basically regardless of what, you know, sort of scale of ecological organization you, um, you know, you, you work at, you know, this is a major, you know, cause of interannual variability and intraannual variability. And, um, you know, both of these things are potentially changing, um, well, are changing and potentially are going to continue to change um, as the climate changes. And so um, it, it seems like part of the problem is this change itself. And another part of the problem is that in a lot of systems, we might not have good baselines for what does the system look like um, without a weird climate. And then how do those things affect um, not just our results, but also how we measure um, the properties of our systems? Yeah. Along those lines, I'm going to be a little antagonistic for a moment. <laughs> sure. But just because I want to ask the question, how important is it to have those baselines of what the system looks like without climate or without this sort of climate change? Because we're never going back there again, at least in our lifetimes. Well, okay, so no, that's a good point. I, I actually arguably think they are important because it gives you an idea of how much change has occurred and perhaps the direction of the change, but also just you know. But yeah, but from a predictive framework, how yeah. how important is that? I guess it's, you you need to be able to. You know, I don't. So here's some, uh, just to jump in here, something that I would invoke is that, you know, whether or not this is really a good assumption in many systems, a lot of our, you know, theories in ecology are, you know, equilibrium theories. And, you know, if our climate is changing as much as, as it is, that's a very clear reason why that's not a good assumption in a lot of different systems. Now, there are other reasons that that's a poor assumption, too, in many cases, but that's, you know, just one reason why um, our theory might not work well for the types of systems that we encounter. Um, if we had better baselines, we might have a better sense of just under what conditions that is or isn't a good assumption for... Mm. Um, you know, for, for our theories, and that might help us make better ones and understand what we're working with better. Sure, that makes sense well, to me. The, the follow-up episode to this would be, what theory or idea in, in ecology do you think must die and you must totally get rid of? And equilibrium <laughs> theory, in some regards, may be that for some places. But... um you know, I, I don't know. I think in a way we need to be, if we're, if we're, we want to move some of our work towards being able to make better, I don't want to say predictions, but more like forecasting, you know, we have to have an understanding of at least what our range of expectations is for a given area or a given ecosystem, a given state, so that we can at least understand the variability of that. And I think... 
you know, I don't know. I think you have to always factor in uncertainty. But, you know, part of that uncertainty is understanding how biased your result may be, you know, for a given time. Um, yeah, I think particularly in the areas that I work in, you know, most of my work is along the, the East Coast or the Mid-Atlantic or the U.S. And one of the things that I think is really vastly under-considered there is the winter. And I say that is because we have widely variant years. You know, we're in, in Virginia right now. We've had two inches of snow this entire winter. Um, that's low. You know, we're not New Hampshire. I understand. But, you know, like areas like uh, Western Maryland and Pennsylvania and West Virginia, you know, we're, you get a lot of snow in the winter, typically. So what happens in these winters where you don't get snow? You know, that's something that we're just now starting to see. And Absolutely. You know, from an ecological standpoint, like what, how important is that? You know, we know that soils will get a lot colder. We know that when a soil gets a lot colder, you have freezing that goes down deeper. We know that freezing can, you know, because when you have a lot of snow, you have like that insulative layer. And the soil temperature stays eh, above freezing, right? Mm -hmm. But when it gets below freezing, you get a lot of nitrogen release because you're having, you know, cells break. They burst um, from all the microbes in there. And so you get a lot of nitrogen leaching from the soil. We don't know. We have no idea, I think, broadly, how important that is necessarily. And, um, you know, we're starting to see this as, as something that's happening now. As, you know, we're having winters without snow. And, you know, while it's not a water issue here, right? When we talk West Coast, um, you know, if the Sierras don't get snow, that's really bad for a different reason. When we don't get snow, it's, it's you know, we're not water limited. But it's more becomes more of a temperature issue, right? So it's like this variability from year to year that's not really broadly considered necessarily. Now, granted, there are people out there doing some work on this. Um, her name totally escapes me right now. <laughs> I'll think of it later. But <laughs> and we apologize. I'll look this up in a minute. But it's something that's really, you know, it's changing climate. It's, it's you know, it's a, it's a new frontier. And it's it's something that I think is going to come more and more to the forefront. Absolutely. I wanna, I'll let you guys go with one of yours. And I'm going to Google this real quick. I was just going to say it's hard to believe soil's freezing when we're here in Iowa and it was 75 degrees this weekend in the middle of February. But, you know, there's just the climate change thing for you, too, again. So, John, did you want to do yours? Sure. Um, so mine is actually on the, the list uh, near the bottom. Um, and the concept that I want to you know, bring up is the Ali effect. Um, this is something that's important to my work, but it, the, the concept um, is... Uh, is simply the idea that um, at at low population density, um, organisms uh, in a population suffer a uh, reduction in per capita fitness. Um, and I think this is really an underappreciated concept. Um, I no doubt think that because it's something that I work on. Um, so I'll just state that, you know, very, very openly. Um, but I think that it's underappreciated because it can be an important force in a lot of different 
um, dynamics that people care about. Um, so in, in you know, any low-density population, um, Ali effects can cause uh, slow population growth and um, even uh, extinctions uh, if the Ali effect is strong. Mm. Um, you know, ass- assuming, you know, an absence of, you know, rescue effects and, um, you know, stochasticity that might, um, you know, bring the, the population growth rate um, up above the, re- the replacement rate. Um, but it's, it's particularly important in, um, obviously, in conservation, where you frequently have um, small or low-density populations uh, and it's also important in range dynamics um, for invasive species um, and also for native species that uh, might be um, undergoing range shifts due to climate change, um, as this is a growing theme of this episode. Uh, <laughs> and uh, so it's, it's a population dynamic factor that might explain why, uh, you know, for instance, you know, the difference between um, a, uh, a a niche model projected range and what a species actual occupied range is um, because it can um, contribute to setting range boundaries um, since you often have smaller low density populations at the edge of a species range um, and, and so the Ali effect can prevent the um, types of uh, or can pre- prevent positive population growth that would or allow that population to spread. Mm. Um, and the Ali effect is ca- can be caused by a number of things that are really, really common. It can be caused by um, predator or the inability to satiate a predator. It can be caused by a failure to locate mates, um, genetic factors like inbreeding depression, um, breakdown of cooperative behaviors in um, more social organisms uh, and so it, it can it can really manifest itself in a lot of different ways and there because of that um, there's reasons to think that uh, it it is widespread um, but it's it's difficult to study um, because it's hard to study small populations and so a lot of the um, a lot of the research on it is based on theory and I think that that is probably one factor that has um, hindered broader interest and adoption in Ali effects, um, just because it's it's not something that um, sort of in a practical sense is um, as accessible to study as I think um, is warranted by its potential importance to um, population dynamics. Do you credit that to part of it being a spatial distribution issue? Like Sorry, these, say that again? Do you credit part of that being like a spatial distribution issue? Like the invasion front or the species front could be where this is occurring, is occurring at such a broad area and they're hard to find? Yeah, you know, so that's, that's certainly part of it, I think. Um, you know, one of the one of the systems where Ali effects are best studied is the gypsy moth. And that's, you know, one of a system that I study and it's, you know, one of the best monitored invasions in the whole world. Um, 
you know, we have very we have traps that are efficient at sampling populations at low density, um, at least the males of that population, um, and we deploy hundreds of thousands of them um, across a very large area of the United States in order to um, accurately delineate populations and um, get good estimates of their abundance and changes um, through time. So, hmm. you know, that that's certainly an important factor. Um, but there are also there's also evidence for Lee effects from much more sparsely sampled populations um, in, you know, organ in you know, even in large mammals that are, um, you know, arguably just as difficult to sample, uh, perhaps more so for, you know, for different reasons. Sure. You brought up the um, interbreeding and like the genetic depression, and that made me think of the the wolves on Isle Royale and what they're going through right now. Is is that also, an, I have a very poor understanding of a Lee effect, admittedly, but would that sort of be their this isolated population? Well, I have a very poor understanding of what the wolves on Isle Royale are doing. Um, I know that we do some gypsy moth research there, but I don't know much about the wolves. Um, so I will hold off on uh, commenting on that fact. Okay. That, Maybe that we can have a whole episode on the Iowa Oriel wolves. That would be great. They're fascinating. That would be kind of awesome. Wasn't there like a whole bunch of moose and then like, then the wolves came over and then the wolves ate all the moose and then the wolves died? Or yes. Is that totally wrong? No, that's my understanding. Okay. Or there's a couple left, but they're very inbred. Because then, the, there's not ice anymore to get over there, I I'm I think we should definitely investigate more and perhaps have an episode on this sort of cool ecological long term mysteries. Classic or, or like series on classic case studies in ecology. Combine like predator prey cycles, Andalie effects, and all kinds <clears throat> of things that excite me. So I'm all over it. Excellent. Okay, it, John, I'm going to ask a dumb question about Andalie effects. Go for it. Um, First, an observation. It wasn't until like four years in that I realized that a Lee effects were named for a person. Um, and it totally amazed me when I learned that. But second is is just, uh, how are they just different from genetic bottlenecks? This may be a dumb question. I'm not a biologist. I just work with biologists. But how are they just different? Hey, say that again. I lost your audio. Oh, that's okay. No, I was going to say, how are they different from just a genetic bottleneck? Or are they? Yeah. Um, so, oh gosh, um, I could totally screw this up because it's been a long time <laughs> since I've thought very much about genetic bottlenecks. Um, but, so, I, I think... The you know the accumulation of deleterious mutations um, can sort of be kind of part and parcel to um, to a Lee effects, but the the thing that makes an Lee effect is really um, that there's um, sort of a positive relationship between. Uh, population size and and fitness 
Um, so okay. I guess you could, you know, you, you could certainly have that if you, um, you know, the smaller the population you get, the more, um, you know, crappy individuals you have, or the more, um, <laughs> you know, del de um, you know, deleterious mutations get accumulated. Um, but I think that you could have, you know, a, um, sort of a gen genetic bottleneck without that um, dependence on population size or population density. And that would distinguish the two. Um, but I'm saying this as someone who is uh, not very well versed in population genetics. So I'm mostly well, just talking. I, I believe you. Yeah, I'm convinced. All right. Well, I don't know what that says about you. Probably that we have a long history of trust built up, and you're willing to uh, overlook I'm, me. I'm not sure that Grace and I are positioned. Grace and I are probably not positioned well to be able to utilize this work and to brought into to to further it. No. But we we support you. <laughs> I don't know anything about animals, at all. Nothing. <laughs> I claim nothing. There, there are Lee effects in plants, just for the record. Um, often from, well, there's genetic Lee effects and also um, from pollen limitation. Just blew my mind. Totally blown. Damn it. Life's <laughs> crazy. Grace, what do you have? What do you have for us? Um, I guess I was looking back and thinking about what I what I responded to this survey, and if I had done any of the fill in the blank what concept was missing and I actually went back and looked at their table three and it reminded me aha yes I had said ecological subsidies and apparently somebody else said it so thank you person who also agreed with me and um, I guess this is probably a little bit uh, where I was at at the time when the survey was done so my dissertation was on allochthony which is terrestrial carbon utilization by aquatic consumers so essentially our fish made of trees and and so um one thing that i was surprised about is but ecological subsidies don't just happen like in lakes with terrestrial carbon coming into aquatic ecosystems right there's cross um cross boundary cross ecosystem subsidy or at least cross ecosystem resource flow and energy flow that's occurring um, this is why the ecosystem concept can be quite useful and so I was surprised that that wasn't included, and I think it's something that, uh, at least on the allochthony front, we've done a pretty good job in quantifying where allochthony occurs and maybe how much allochthony occurs in a given lake, and by that I mean how much terrestrial versus aquatic carbon is being incorporated into a consumer's biomass. But I think the more interesting question now at this point that um, at least in lakes that we're challenged with now is maybe trying to ask questions of does allochthony matter? And if it does, when does it matter? You know, does it matter for the consumer's population size, their growth, their reproductive rate? And there's been some really interesting work done on that um, in more of a laboratory setting using, um, you know, looking at reproduction and fatty acids and things like that. And there's also been, um, I think it would be interesting to bring that up to an ecosystem scale and try to understand how, say, allochthony might influence cycling of nutrients in a lake. Um, and, you know, concepts such as that, maybe biodiversity. 
um, and things like that. And so I think that's the point that at least we are at in lakes. Uh, the stream people have known this for a while. You know, they look at us and say, yeah, you got leaves and streams. Critters eat them. Of course, critters are, you know, aquatic critters are made out of trees. Um, but, you know, they, they get surprised when aquatic carbon is being utilized. And we're the opposite. And we're like, so we're like, oh, my gosh, it's not just aquatic carbon, terrestrial stuff, too. Um, so maybe within the aquatic systems, we need to get our stuff straight before we can move forward. I don't know. But that's so that's what I was sort of surprised as a concept that wasn't included ecological subsidies. And I think it is really important when you think about the energy transfer of energy and mass and nutrients as well as consumers across boundaries, right? So I think about like fish that jump up and eat songbirds out of the air. Or um, One time we found a bass with a star-nosed mole in its stomach. Yeah, this was some hungry bass. Um, I, maybe maybe the vole was in the, the water. Um, and so that that's where I think the interesting questions also lie as well. So, so I have a question for you, but I have a quick aside. I used to work at a Boy Scout summer camp. It was awesome. Still the best job I ever had, teaching wilderness survival. But we had a giant nature center, and we had a big aquarium. And when people would catch bass, they would bring them and put them in the aquarium. This was a giant aquarium, right? So we had like these three, four-pound largemouth bass there. And one year, we had a huge mouse outbreak um, infestation. And someone fed a mouse to the bass. And it ate it. And uh, still to this day, I'm amazed at that I don't know he just kind of just dropped the mouse in there just to see what would happen and the bass totally ate it and so they fed the bass mouse like mice for the rest of the summer <laughs> that is an excellent way to get rid of your mouse problem there was like four or five bass in that tank by the end of the summer and they were just all eating mice every day and they were that's so fantastic and um, my huge question bass. to you though is <laughs> huge bass huge we have the best bass <laughs> <laughs> but um, that alloctony, that that term of, of, of you talk about aquatic carbon, how does that compare to terrestrial carbon? Like, what are we talking about fluxes here? So I, I guess I don't at least. quite understand your oh, like how much is coming in. Mm-hmm. So yeah. I, that that really depends on the lake, and I think it depends on what form of carbon you're talking about. And I know that's a very dissatisfying okay. answer. So let me try to get at that a little bit more. Um. It turns out perimeter probably matters a lot. So in other words, how much your your lake is interacting along the perimeter, so where that flux can come in from. Um, dissolved hmm. organic matter in lakes, and at least in um, the majority of temperate lakes that have been sampled, the bulk of that dissolved organic matter is coming from terrestrial sources. So that's what can make lakes look like tea, right? And like that brown color. Yeah. Um, there's some, as far as the particulate organic matter, um, what I found is across a range of lakes, it can vary from 0% all the way up to almost 100% of that organic matter is terrestrial. And so it really depends. Um, but then the consumers really follow that as well. In a lake where mostly terrestrial stuff is around for you to eat, turns out you're mostly made out of terrestrial stuff um, <laughs> with some preferential assimilation of that aquatic carbon. Um, but then you also have to think about in, in turn, too, about if you have that terrestrial material coming in, it's making the water color darker, and so then it can make it more difficult 
for algae to grow, right? Because they become a little bit more light limited, but it could also be bringing in some nutrients, which can help algae if there aren't a lot of nutrients around. So there's maybe this sweet spot or this trade-off point between where bringing in nutrients with the terrestrial material um, starts to be outweighed by the light blocking capacity of this terrestrial material coming in. So it actually is sort of this interplay between the two. So what about the rest of the community? Can, you know, can different levels of allochthony influence, you know, how the rest of your community is structured in terms of like your consumers and you know, different levels of predators? Yeah, that's a great question. And I, I think it probably can. So one thing that we've generally found in particular studying zooplankton, because they're pretty easy to sample and look at this, is even within the same system, not all zooplankton are created equal in terms of allochthony. Some are much more allochthonous than others. And so I think a lot of that has to do with their um, feeding mechanisms, whether or not they're predatory or not. Um, but I would imagine that that also influences um, what sort of energy can be transferred further up the food web. And so it um, likely, I, I, I wouldn't be surprised if there was an influence on biodiversity. I am not currently aware of anyone who's really looked at that in depth, though, before. But I think that's a really interesting question. Do it. <laughs> Just throw a proposal idea. Yeah. Yeah, I, I'm not going to do this, but if you got some extra time, <laughs> you know, if you get around to that. No, but I, I think mean, that's the... Um, I think <clears throat> I could write a proposal about that. There you go. I yeah. So, but, you know, subsidies, I, I just, I study lakes, so I focus on that, right? But cross-system subsidies happen in all sorts of ecosystems and can um, be really important. And actually be a subsidy. In other words, you know, allow there to be more life there than there would be without it, as opposed to just a trade-off or um, a subtraction. So. You know, I think cool. I think you, you, you bring up, like, the lake people not talking to the stream people, but, you know, like the forest people don't talk to either of you people. <laughs> yeah. And I think the one thing that needs to be done across ecology is more talking to people outside of your immediate discipline and uh, some more kind of interdisciplinary work. Though, for the record, 40 minutes ago, I was complaining about not being able to publish everybody. an interdisciplinary paper. What's that? The, the quantitative ecologists talk to everybody because we just want people's data. <laughs> that's, true. that's true. What What was that essay a few <laughs> years ago by Likens and Lindemann? And there's nothing about data parasites. Yeah, I collect. Oh my data god, too. I forgot just, about that one. That was a good one. Just for the record, I collect data too. It's used to See, I'm sure you do. It puts people on the defensive. Sure There's another episode: data parasitism. Is that the everyone gangs up on John episode? No, no. Well, maybe. <laughs> it's a it's a spectrum. You're not you're not to the extreme on that spectrum. It's totally fine. Yeah. Totally fine. Well, the uh, the one thing that I will that I will say that's anti-data parasitism is that um, all of my work in which I don't collect data really benefits from interacting with the people who actually do. Um, so I nearly always um, you know, collaborate with someone who's collected the data or is really familiar with, um, with the system and, and stuff like that. And I feel like that really um, benefits my work. I think that it allows 
um, you know, people to be involved in research that they wouldn't otherwise. Um, so I think it's more of a mutualism than a than a parasitism. Absolutely, but, it can be parasitism though when it's just cut and run. Oh yeah, oh yeah, absolutely. <laughs> when you're a lion weight predator. John's just scrolling through like Dryad and Figshare and just looking at like <laughs> underutilized data sets, just writing papers. Yeah. Well, no, John, I, yeah, I do. Re- I do very much appreciate that point because at least I believe um, that ecology is a place-based science, and that that's something I've heard. Uh, so that's not my own words. I think it's a great phrase. I heard Steve Carpenter say it first. Um, and so there is a lot of benefit to having someone who collected those data or who, you know, are familiar with those methods or worked with those data or are familiar with that system and informing a, an additional analysis of it. So I really yeah. respect that approach. And, and I, I really do think that it, it makes my work better. And um, so I'm going to keep doing it. Well, guys, I think this was a, a really good discussion. Um, as a closing thought, I don't know if you guys heard about this, but Miller Coors announced they are bringing Zima back. I did see uh, that. <laughs> were you guys old enough to actually have Zima at one point? Not legally. I don't think I ever had Zima. <laughs> I think you guys can both drink it. I'm not sure. I know there's some dietary restrictions there, but I think Zima may be okay. Um, you should do it once. Just <laughs> to have experience. <laughs> I think that was like the first thing I ever drank. It's kind of it's not not great. I'm not gonna. Yeah. But anyway, we're gonna talk about ecological ideas that must die over Zima. Excellent. Whatever they decide. All right. Sounds up. like a deal. Cool. Well, thank you guys for listening. You can uh, subscribe to the show on iTunes or Google Play. I just looked up on Google Play, and we don't actually have any subscribers on Google Play yet, but we're kicking it and killing it on iTunes, so I'm good with that. (laughs) You can also reach us on Twitter at major underscore revisions or email us at majorrevisionsshow at gmail.com. And with that, thank you guys for listening, and we will see you soon. Bye guys. Bye. Have fun. See you